This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to Kinda Mason's Brown Rice Hour a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda. So hello, everybody. Um, I'm back and I am Conda Mason with the Brown Rice Hour. And on the Brown Rice Hour, we have intersectional conversations of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Those are my favorite topics to talk about, land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And so uh, today's guest is one of my dearest, dearest loves and friends and colleague and um, bestie and his name is uh, Dr. David Raglan. So uh, welcome, David, to the Brown Rice Hour. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course, of course. Such a and, pleasure. Yeah, I'm sorry it took so long. You know, I've been, uh, I, I actually had you down, um, like I, ha- I make little, um, I make uh, little folders for everybody. And I had you in a folder already for July back last year and nothing was in it. I remember we tried, remember? we tried to make it happen. Yeah, that's right. that's right. So here we are. So happy to have you, David. And um, so I always begin, I like to begin with uh, creating a little bit of sacred space. Um, and I like to begin actually with, um, you know, a little land acknowledgement and where you are and where I am. And would you like to let us know where you are? What what indigenous land are you are you sitting on right now? Sure. I am in uh, in Rockland County in New York. I'm on Ramapo Lenape land. Okay. Very good. I am actually um, have um, was in Oakland most of this time on Brown Rice Hour, but now I'm in Louisiana right in central Louisiana. And um, I'm in the the land of the Chittimaca tribe, the Kushata, the Choctaw, and the Tunica Biloxi tribe of people who, um, this is their land that uh, I am here on and honored to, um, to be here and to give them full respect. Um, yeah. And I like to also um, do a little centering around and honoring, um, you know, our ancestors. We do a lot of ancestor work, you and I, and it's so important to me that we look at our ancestors, that we honor them, that we understand that they are us and we are them, and I wouldn't be here without them and the sacrifices and the love that they carried and that they carried through, particularly as 
um, you know, um, formerly enslaved people who have done so much to to get me here. Mm-hmm. And so I'm forever grateful for that and for your ancestors as well. And David, that I know um, in order for us to be here, they went through a lot. They went through a lot. And um, I also think about those who are still to come before us, you know, whose ancestors we will be and that we will be good ancestors. I'm always praying that I will listen to the whispering in my ear of my ancestors so that I can learn to be a good ancestor for those who are coming. If there's anything you'd like to add to that, um, you're welcome. Or, um, I was just thinking about my, my grandma Goldie. Grandma Goldie. Who was an organizer, mm. um, not in no sense, but just deeply focused on community and family. Nice. Um, Is that your mother's side or your father's side? My mom's mom. Your mom's mom, Grandma Goldie. My, yeah, my mother was the oldest of 11. Oh, nice. Nice. Wow. That was a lot of uh, mothering she had to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing when we think about, you know, what our parents, how even their lives, even before, just as as close to us as our parents, how different it was than, than our own. And um, so just good shout out to, to all of our people. And um, may we, again, just do the good work that we're here to do and become the ancestors that we want to be. So um, I want to begin by describing um, your work, um, David. So you described it as you're the co-founder of the Truth Telling Project of Ferguson, and you're the director of the Grassroots Reparations Campaign. And I have a short bio here that I want to read um, to say a little bit about who David is and the depth that this this man is. Dr. David Raglan is one of the co-founders and co-executive director of the Truth Telling Project and the director of the Grassroots Reparations Campaign, which we will go into in this in this conversation together today. Georgetown University's Advocacy Lab included Dr. Raglan's research as part of the most important research on advocacy in the last 40 years. And David was recently inducted into the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Collegium of Scholars at Morehouse College. And he served as the senior Bayard Rustin Fellow at Fellowship of Reconciliation, and as a board member for the Peace and Justice Studies Association. Dr. Raglan's recent publications include Truth Telling as the as Colonial Human Rights Education and the Movement for Black Liberation, and another article called Truth Telling from the Margins, Explore, Exploring Black-Led Responses to Police Violence and Systemic Humiliation. So David, it's a lot to unpack <laughs> that I want to talk about. It sounds so heady. You sound like, you know, it's all in your head. And I know you are so deeply full with heart. So we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to start. Well, actually, I'm going to start with the belly. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with the belly. So the first question that I'm going to ask you is mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So this is called the brown rice hour. And one of the reasons I call it the brown rice hour is that I love brown rice. Mm. And it was pivotal in the transformation of my diet when I went from meat eating into macrobiotic and it just changed everything. And it's been catalytic for me and I just love, love it as well. And I grow it actually right now. So um, I'm a foodie and I am interested always. And I think it just kind of reveals a lot when people answer this question. And the question is, what food was it that was prepared for you when you were a child that was like that comfort food that you just you know mm, mm, mm. and and who and who prepared it for you it was it was um spaghetti um and and catfish sandwiches wait a minute what say that uh, again Spaghetti, spaghetti and catfish sandwich. Both of those are a sandwich. Catfish sandwich. Well, not not on the same thing, but just you know. Oh, okay. 
cat like uh catfish on, on white bread with hot sauce, pickles, tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> um and and it was and also collard greens. Mm-hmm. So, but it was, I was, I would have to say it's actually like really the spaghetti and collard greens. Like, okay. I, like my, like those are things that I cook today. Um, to this day. Who, just, who prepared it for you back when you were a kid? My mama. My mama. Okay. Mm-hmm. Was she a good cook? She was okay. She's all right. But, you know, it, you know, when you cook, when you, when you the oldest of 11 and you, support that mothering and cooking for all of those kids mm. you know um at a certain point she just stopped cooking okay. and like y'all do it so she was the oldest of 11 kids mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she would always make us a pot of spaghetti and collard greens like that mm-hmm. she, and I, that was just and it, it wasn't that it was great it was just it was home home it it was care yeah um you know and i I think i make better collard greens and spaghetti now but um you know not to hate on my mama no no we ain't hating on mama but it's just it is what it is Mm -hmm. and that's good so it still gives you that kind of feeling of comfort and home and and it and it and actually when my when my so I'm the youngest and my brother and sister were away at college, it was for a while it was just me and my mother had quit cooking. And I was just like, Mama, how come you don't cook no more? You know, and, and it was in addition to like doing other stuff. And I was like, Ain't this woman's work? And she said, You gonna cook and you gonna clean and you gonna cook and you gonna cook cook and clean for me and you gonna wash the clothes. And I was like, in this woman's work? She was like, Nope, just in case you get somebody who don't know how or want to for you. (laughs) So that domesticated me in the sense that like it's like that mothering work is men's work as well. And it's necessary for men to nurture, to unravel or be part of part of unraveling misogyny. Yeah. Um, so that was some early lessons through food that I learned. It's interesting because I, I I I wasn't planning on thinking that we would go in this direction, but since it's here, um, I've told you once before, and I'll say it, you know, in public that the men that I know in my life, you are, I would say, one of, if not the most feminist, womanist man that I have in my life. And how the total integrity of how you walk, and now it's going back to your mother. I, you know, we never had this conversation, and so it's been it's been building a long time because there's so much pressure to go the opposite direction in society, right? The men thing, and um, and you have all that, I'm sure. I mean, to the degree that you need to to na- navigate, but um, the way you navigate as a feminist. Black man is, is unparalleled for me and my and people that I know. Uh, thank you for saying that. I know I have a lot of work to do, and I would I have to credit uh, Maxine Green, who was one of my professors when I was in grad school at Columbia, and Betty Reardon, um, and and um, you know I, I wrote my dissertation. Not that that. Means anything, but I wrote it on feminist theories of justice. But then I think in practice, it was it was Corey Bush and Imani Scott who, at the beginning of the Ferguson protest, basically like jumped on my head for my dating practices, mm. um, and would always remind me when I was being bossy or needed to shut up, um, and just allowing myself to be encircled by powerful black women and powerful women in general, uh, because I love my mother um, and she taught me how to love women and she talked to me and we had conversations and I love my dad who, who taught me a lot, but also Danielle, 
uh, my partner taught me a lot too. Like, you know, as a as a a black woman who is a queer, non-conforming um, woman, woman um, um, taught me so much about gender and actually walking the talk mm. and entering relationships with curiosity as opposed to extraction. Mm. So when when you if you're if you're anti-colonialist or anti-racist, you have to be feminist uh, because um, Bell Hooks right describes the way in which uh, black maleness is is the way that it is expressed in this moment is a articulation of those first colonial encounters. Mm. And um, that's what decolonization means um, as well. Um, and I'm, I'm here for the liberation and I'm here to keep learning. Um, and, and I honor the sacred masculinity that, that there is like, it can be both. You can be a man and a feminist, and I, and I'm I'm learning personally how to to walk this and have integrity in my relationships. I'm I'm still learning, but it's through a lot of mess ups. Oh, I'm I'm so sure. You know, I mean, but if we don't put ourselves out there to mess up, we hide behind um, safety and continue to perpetuate the status quo mm -hmm. that we know that we're supposedly trying to transform. And so it's really important. I'm curious when having this stance, when you're dealing with other men or black men um, who are not feminists, who don't see the intersectionality there, how do you navigate that? I, I, I'm a truth teller. I'm a radical truth teller. Um, I try to tell the truth about what's happening, and I and I practice it, you know, in my in my relationships. And I think one of the one of the biggest lessons for me was, you know, uh, my you know, if you black, you got play sisters and play cousins, and you know, all of this stuff. And one of my one of my closest, probably closer to me than my own sister. Uh, Kathy came out in the late 90s when we were in, in St. Louis. And um I and that moment of coming out made me go back and reflect about my experience in a fraternity or or and being homophobic um as an undergraduate. Um and like I, I, I wasn't like I wasn't like um I was I was homophobic, but I wasn't like um you know out you know what I mean? Like out radically there. radically homophobic, like you weren't you a know. little bit is 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 bad, right? Right but, but that proximity and and the I remember my dad was driving and talking about my play sister. He said, you know, homosexuality is the downfall of Western civilization. And I said, that's what they said about integration. <laughs> and he, he looked at me and was like, huh, you're right. And to, to look at the ways that, and that misogynoir and homophobia are anti-black and reflect colonial logic. They they actually reflect the internal logic of racism and coloniality. Can you unpack that? What is that logic? Um that that logic is is the proximity toward whiteness and maleness is valued most and anything else is a deviation. Mm -hmm. And and so um you know to 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 describe um 
I mean, in Western civilization itself is a sham, right? Um, but, but yeah, in the same ways, and I think I want to say uh, Michael, it was Michael Harriet in the root said that black men are the white men of black people. Wow. Um, and that really touched me too. Like, you know, wow. never heard that. The way that I, you know, I didn't want to be a part. I didn't want to, I didn't want to reflect anti-black values. Like if black lives matter, then all black lives matter. And so it was a matter of me confronting um, this, this, um, these views in my own perspective and trying to walk and live. And then, you know, I met Danielle who, when we began dating, I didn't know that, that they were queer and they had kind of talked a little bit about it. And then, then I'm confronting it in my own personal relationship in a whole nother way. <laughs> then we're raising our child as, as um, we're, we're raising them um, gender neutral. And the stuff that have come out of people's mouths. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I don't want to put out my family, but I have a very close family member who, you know, wouldn't acknowledge it and, you know, just dogged me out, said, well, we'll see how your child turns out 20 years from now. Come to find out, it's their job to teach about um, queerness, um, identities, right, as, as a leader in their company, and used me and Danielle and our child as an example. <laughs> For real. So, you know, this is somebody like, yeah, really, 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 really close. And I just, yeah, yeah. So it, it is, um, but I confront it. Um, I don't play with folk mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because um, I'm in this movement and these are things I believe in and I'm not playing around with this. And yeah. I think, but also part of it is the need for political education in our communities. Yeah. And, uh, but also, and, and we did some of that in the Truth Telling Project. We did um, a series of healing circles uh, for Black men. Um, Let's and, talk about the Truth Telling um, Project. Can you explain how it started, what it, what precipitated it, and what it's trying to, or, or has been accomplishing? So it was, um, it was really like uh, after Mike Brown had got gotten killed, and I was this. I was in like in St. Louis. In St. Louis, and I was standing outside of my parents' house because two weeks after Mike Brown had gotten killed, another black man was was killed across the street from my parents' house, and it was a standoff between the police. And I was thinking that now our neighborhood was about to erupt, and a guy, somebody called me and said, "What are you doing?" And I was like, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm out here. I'm, you know, I might write a paper. <laughs> you know? I might go to protest. And it was, and he's like, dude, like, aren't you a peace educator? Like, don't, like, don't you do? And and it was that moment, and it was another moment where I was talking with a friend, like, on the night Mike Brown got killed that night, mm. and. I was telling him because I was teaching in Bucknell at the time, and I and I said, "Yeah, I had just taught this class about Palestine, or or I took my students to this protest, you know, protesting at the Israeli embassy because they wanted to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or really, really Israeli apartheid." Mm -hmm. And he was like, "You know, we got our own Gaza here," <laughs> and that just like mm. it just. You know, and so um, we we initially started it because we were thinking like, you know, conversations that are going to be needing to have, need to. And then we started thinking about a, a truth commission around mm -hmm. police violence. Okay. 
And it turned into like this uh, quasi truth commission where where folk could tell their stories um, in in safe spaces using restorative practices and really like resituating like who tells the truth. Hmm. And what we ended up doing was creating this online learning platform, right? That that held people's stories and and folks from all over the country ended up coming to Ferguson to tell their stories. Um, Sandra hmm. Bland's sister, um, Tamir Rice's mother and and brother and and just folks from all over the country as a as a way to be in control of our own stories and our own narratives. Yeah. And we we ended up thinking and moving around a lot around reparations because I remember one of the last hearings I was in, uh, I was sitting in the back listening um, uh, to to some of the truth tellers tell their stories about you know what their family members and they had experienced encountering police and. I saw white folks crying, walking out the room, and I got angry, right? Because it was also, at that time, the 100-year anniversary of the East St. Louis um, racial massacre, right? Where it happened all over the countries, you know, all over the U.S., where, you know, there were white mobs attacking Black folk. And I, and I was just thinking, like, you know, we've been telling our stories and trying to get people to empathize with us for, for so long. And I was just like, truth telling has to lead to reparations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when we, we started thinking about uh, reparations and like, like that next year we began in earnest having conversations with sort of justice for Oakland youth and fellowship of reconciliation and other organizations to think about, um, reparations as a spiritual practice. Now, that's what I'd love to talk about, because, you know, I know that you come to reparations and this work from a spiritual practice place, from a place of spiritual practice. And I know when, typically, I think when Americans, especially white Americans, they think of reparations, it just sounds like, oh, I'm going to lose something or you want money or whatever it might be. And you're you you have a holistic view of it. I'm curious if you can explain to people what is the spiritual aspect of reparations as you see it. Well, I mean, I think in, in part, and also a little bit about your own spiritual practice at some point. Sure. Okay. Um, I mean, so I I, I look at reparations as um, repair like repairing something that is broken and and it is uh what is is deeply broken um is like the fact that from the the, the highest um kind of at the highest like religious and spiritual levels in the western tradition there was this 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 doctrine of discovery right that says that you know anybody who's not christian is not human and so you can take their lands and subjugate them right and so like that was this justification for like the the creation of africans as inhuman in the european imagination mm-hmm. so so the the breach is spiritual Right, the thing that allowed uh, people to treat black folk and non-white folk as inhuman, um, to extract from people and land, inhabit bodies, like all of the things that colonization and slavery did, um, was justified. Like at at this core understanding, mm-hmm. and so reparations has always been a part of uh, every single spiritual tradition, like making amends. Like you do something wrong, mm-hmm. right? You pay it back. Mm-hmm. You you make repair, 
right? Because, because um, you know, Jennifer Harvey in, in her book, Dear Right, Dear right Christians, Rights of White Folk Want Racial Reconciliation, right? Then, then they should pay reparations, right? And so like we look at reparations as amending of this uh, historic gap that goes to the very core of who we are. Mm-hmm. Like slavery didn't just happen, it continued. It's ongoing. It continued in policing. It continued in, um, in, in, car- in the carceral system. It is continuing there. Like one of the only places that slavery is still a lot allowed right, in the U.S. Constitution is in, in incarceration, right? Colorado just had an um, amendment to disallow that, right? But, you know, at, at some very core levels, this, this country has given up morality for economic progress mm-hmm. and, and played a trick with themselves too, right? Because Joseph Ellis in the book Founding Brothers writes about how um, there was this rigorous moral debate in the Constitutional Congress about slavery. And the Quakers even um, uh, put in a petition to immediately abolish slavery. Um, And they, of course, decided not to. But on top of that, Um, they set it up so that um, there would be no records or or discourse uh, or public acknowledgement of their conversation until that first generation of founders died. So there was enforced silence about the debate so that the inhumanity or the subhumanness of Black folk would be something that was a given and yeah. accepted in this society. Yeah. And so we thought that the, that because religion and faith and spirituality was at the core right of slavery, right? Look at the in in the early 1800s the slave bible was introduced in the um in the deep south uh but but by the Episcopalian church uh for I'm sorry, by the Anglican Church uh, for the West Indies, right? And the Caribbean. Um, because, you know, that that slave Bible took out every mention of freedom and liberation. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to ask you about the slave Bible. So it's it varies from the Bible as we know it, and it, it, it deleted freedom and liberation and... Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably like less than one third of what the size of the, the the Bible that we know of, and and I'm, and you know I I I just my own self like it just made sense to me because you know we all know the historical reference about the most segregated time in America at one point was in on Sunday morning. And, you know, our movements, abolition was a deeply spiritual, um, you know, practice. And so, you know, reparations has to also be full abolition. We have to eliminate the systems that emerged during slavery, which are continuing today. Mm -hmm. And so it has to start in our hearts. And it and if it does not take hold in our hearts, it won't happen. It won't be fulfilled because they'll cut a check and call us a nigga tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what kind of world, or what does a repaired world look like? Yeah, and it has to look like changed people. I'm not saying you can't cut my check and keep working on the stuff in the interim. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll, I appreciate the United Nations definition of reparation, which is, you know, education, culture shifting, healing, mental, physical, spiritual, um, restitution, returning what was stolen, 
and guarantees of non-repeat. Don't do that shit no more. Right. And what does it take to not do it anymore? It takes a change in heart. Yeah. It takes transformation of laws, um, trans like what we're on the verge of now. Like we're building critical mass toward like abolishing uh the carceral system. Um yeah. and and also that you know we approached it from a spiritual perspective because if you look at the civil rights era legislation like the Fair Housing Act, mm-hmm. you know, the Fair Housing Act has been used to essentially fuel, um, even under the Obama administration, decades of gentrification, mm-hmm. where the Center for Investigative Journalism is reporting how hard it is for Black people to get a mortgage, right? under the same laws that was supposed to allow them to us to get mortgages, allow us to be able to live in our own communities and fix our houses. Right. And so it has to be a heart level change yeah. in every white person in America, whether descendant from slaveholders or not has a stake in owes reparations. So that's a good question that I want to get to. Um, God, there's so much to unpack. There's so much I want to say in everything you said. It's brilliant. And um, and I'm hearing you say that as a person, as a particularly as a white American, a white person in America, that the key to getting towards understanding and uh, embodying is that it has to be embodied. Reparation has to be embodied as a as literally within your body, within your heart. Um, you know, the Donella Meadows saying that the most effective way to make transformation in any system is to change the mindset that created the system, which completely makes sense, right? Changing the mindset that created the system. And so People today don't think, white folks today, I don't believe, think that they created this system. And so I didn't create the system. It's not, I wasn't there when this happened. Why am I responsible? What does this have to do with me? Can you answer that? Sure. You, you know, they may not, the current white folks may not have created it, but they benefit from a system, right? So for instance, there's a direct correlation between the experience of black people every day in between white folk you know so for instance if we look at policing for instance which is a really good example right because you know policing as we know it today is a direct descendant of the slave slave uh patrols right absolutely you know where where any white person anywhere slave owners or not were you know, required um, to essentially, um, you know, turn in that person, right? And even take their life, right? If it if it came down to it. And so we look at on a policy level, you know, police over-police Black neighborhoods because they're not focusing on white communities, because mm-hmm. they act in ways as, they act like security guards for white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But that's just like the surface level, right? Right. You know, what about like the Northeast, right? You know, people people in the Northeast like are thinking, well, you know, we, we're in the North, you know. But they right. they they were they were they benefited from uh, the banks, right? That uh, underwrote insured um, slavery, right? They they also the public bonds that created, you know municipalities, right? They also invested mm-hmm. in slave, like actual cities invested in slaveholders, you know, right. ship making that uh, ships were built in the North, right? Um, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's most recently, um, posthum- I can't say that word, <laughs> posthumously yeah. published book, right, was, um, talks about the the ship that was built in New Hampshire, I think it was New Hampshire, that transported the last batch of slaves. Right, right. Um, So there's all these connections. Mm -hmm. You know, in addition to, even if you were immigrants, you walked 
into a system, right, that was built on slave labor and theft of land, right? And so there's all these connections and often people who say that just want to find a way out, you know? Um, But, you know, this country is adept at hiding and renaming and uh, changing history around um, so that, that people can find convenient reasons as to not do and acknowledge what is right. So, so what is the, for you, what is the link between truth-telling and reparations? Mm. I mean, so tr- and TRC, let's talk about truth and reconciliation, TRC. Well, you know, truth, so truth and reconciliation is a, um, a tool in, in transitional justice, which is, an, um, you know, at least in the last 50 years, right, emerging after all of these um, dictators, right, um, U.S. funded dictators, right, left power and like, um, so that people could have gross violations of human rights redressed. And so the elements of transitional justice are truth-telling, criminal justice and prosecution, right, for those who violated human rights, um, truth-seeking, right, which is like research and documentation of what happened, and reparations, right? The the United Nations actually uh, defines, and and that's the kind of, the the definition that I'm coming from, like, um, you know, that there ought and must be economic, um, you know, moral and spiritual and legal, like, reparatory action to respond to gross violation of human rights. So truth telling is that vehicle to, to that is a moral and, and political uh, uh, and social uh, inventory about what happened. And that does that not begin with education, right? Because a lot of people just don't know. They really don't know what happened. I mean, the schools are not, I just, saw somewhere last year that, um, who was it that did the study? It's a Black organization in in um, Montgomery, not EJI. Not EJI? No, the other one. Um, Is it the Proctor Conference? No. Anyway, they did a study that said that they were looking at that 80% of high school students do not know that the Civil War was connected to slavery and had to do with slavery. I mean, that's the kind of education of the kind of lie telling that is actually happening. So not only do we have to do truth telling, we have to stop the lies and then move into the truth and educate ourselves because if we don't do it ourselves, it's not, I mean, you know, so there's so much proactive. We're talking about, I think we're talking about people becoming proactive in their own education, mm-hmm. um, you know, reading the articles, reading the books, being proactive to a group of, of our citizens who don't really read that much anymore or are not that, you know, um, curious, should I say, and rather settling with life as it is and as it comes and that means perpetuating the system that we have. And so it's really, I think, um, when you talk about truth-telling, which I love the word truth-telling, and it just goes to the core of me, um, I think that the truth is something that people don't really even know what the truth is. Mm-hmm. You know, And so this level of self-educating is really important. And how do we do that? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? For our people, white people, black, black people, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I think that like to tell the truth is a radical act, right? In this moment, because of what you described as, I mean, it is socially sanctioned and produced ignorance, right? To, to say black people were transported here right, and domestic workers, right, as opposed to stolen, yeah, right, and child trafficked, and on, and on, right, and like we're seeing it in Georgia, 
right? Um, but I think I think that what happened in Chicago and not recently, not Evans, not Evanston, like that's important too. But I'm talking about the Chicago Torture Justice Center, mm-hmm. which is a result of activists out in the streets demanding that there be reparations now, right? right? For the torture chamber of one of the police uh, commanders, John Burge, for decades, torture black folk, you know, forced so many confessions. Yeah. And, And part of the outcome of that reparations was education. Yeah. Like they had to include what happened. Yeah. In, in Chicago education. And then they created a torture justice center so that folks actually know. Yeah. So like reparations, right? It can't just be a check. It's gotta be a way to systemically and socially like educate people about the truth, right? And and that's why, you know, reparations is like just the check piece is, is, is important. And we can't deny people say, just give me my check. Yeah, yeah, you got it right. Because that's what reparations is. It's moral and material repair for harm. But it's got to be more. It's got to be education and real education about what happened and what continues to happen. Because otherwise, it's going to keep happening. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Guarantee of no repeat. And the guarantee of no repeat means you got to know what happened as not to do it again. Mm-hmm. And all the circumstances, all the factors, all the causes and conditions that surround it, the, the, this whole need for, for reparations. You yeah. know, Sojourner Truth said that um, the, the, it's something like the, the greatest antidote to injustice is the truth, is mm. to shine a light on the truth. Yeah. But it also hurts. When you, you know, when you shine a light on somebody when they sleep and they like, oh, it's too, you know, it's yeah, too, too bright, bright, too bright. Or even Plato's cave allegory <laughs> about shining the light on directly on the people and how painful it is because they've been stuck in one position. Mm-hmm. You know, like people are stuck. Yeah. And and I, you know, I'm not going to use it to like, and and not awake to to this history, and don't want to be. But and at the same time, though, we got to say, David, this is what I'm seeing, and I know you are too. I have never been more hopeful, yeah. ever, yeah, than where we are right now with reparations and what is happening. That it is in, it is in the political lexicon. People are talking about it. And what? Where was that? Evanston, Illinois. The first city that just um, the city council um, last week, I think it was, that declared reparations that they were going to do reparations to the black um, black citizens of that city. Um, I just feel like it's never been closer mm-hmm. now than it has ever been. Um, and so HR forty, I don't know what's happening. I mean, there's just so much going on, and people are waking up. People are waking up to that word that used to just be ridiculous. Like, are you kidding me? Reparations. Like, even though when you look over history outside of this country, however, how many countries have done reparations for atrocities that have happened to groups of people? Right. And Great Britain just got finished paying descendants of slave owners reparations. You know, that's Um, right. but, But we have examples here. Oh, there's so many worldly examples in the United States. It's just, but I do feel, David, that right now we are on the cusp of 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 something breaking through. It's little by little, and the work that you're doing is such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, if you were to, you know, speak right now, like, right to folks mm-hmm. who are struggling with reparations and the concept, what do I do? How do I support it? What does it take? Where do I go to learn? Mm-hmm. Just what kind of resources would you give give folks right now in this moment? Sure, I was I would send them to grass the grassroots reparations website grassrootsreparations.org. Grassrootsreparations.org. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I would um, also, um, there's so many resources, like that's actually like, <laughs> I know there's so many now. What about reparations for slavery by Lottie yeah, Dula? Reparations for slavery. The, actually, that's where I would send people first. Right, reparations. And that's reparations with the letter four, the number four, slavery. Dot, dot com. Yeah, dot com. Because it, it, it walks you through. And for folks who just don't know anything, like I actually send people there. Yeah, that's where I send folks. I feel like, I feel like what we're talking about is just a little bit like, you know what I mean? That that not not that her stuff is simple. It is like she's a straight shooter, <laughs> and she she just tells people like this, you know. And and from a person who, you know, and so the founder of ReparationsForSlavery.com, Lottie Dula, is someone who is descendant is a descendant of uh, enslavers, uh, and has immigrants right on on one on one side and then the other side so like you know she's able to like see it in in both of these ways and didn't know until recently discovered discovered that her ancestors that were enslavers found the little book with the names of all these enslaved human beings Mm -hmm. and and so yeah i i really think that that's probably the the best place to go operations for slavery.com yeah yeah Yeah, we gotta we gotta we gotta lift up lottie and the work that she's doing the the website is is deep and incredible very accessible Mm -hmm. um every door that you open there's just so much richness there and you're in and just huh? you can spend a year and not oh, be exhausted with all totally, of it in there. Totally. And not not read all of it and but you get a sense of what to do. Mm-hmm. And um and then she's doing also other work outside of the website that's connected to the website actually with people and um is a part of uh I'm very fortunate to say and so now I've got to be transparent and say that David and and I we work together. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a part of my nonprofit called Jubilee Justice and Jubilee Justice Journeys, where we work with um, we work with people, and we work with 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 uh, as cross cross race cross class um, people of wealth, people of financial wealth, people of spiritual wealth, people of 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 thought leadership wealth coming together, and at this intersection of land, race, money, and spirit. And um, uncovering so much together, working a lot with our ancestors and, and the ancestral line, and really being able to um, discover together, letting go of the whole thing that I think that stops people and it, it, this this shame blame kind of energy that um, is really to me just something that just is a way of stopping yourself from moving forward. Um, but David and Lottie are are all a part of my our, our good, beautiful team together. And I have the pleasure of every week, every week, being in community with this man right here and uh, with Lottie. So we're going to have to close now, David. And I just want to say, um, you know, your brilliance and your work is just, it's, it's impeccable. I am grateful to have you as my friend and my colleague and my teacher. I'm constantly learning from you. And it's just such a pleasure to be in your in your uni- universe. And I'm just happy to introduce you to whoever's listening out there and who pays attention to this podcast to understand you and your work and, and how you lead. And it's just, um, it's Lottie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kind of, I feel that way about you. Yeah, about you. Like I'm, I'm yeah. honored to work with you and know you. And it's just been like you changed my life. Like you know, I, I like you, because you know, I've been thinking about spirituality yet, and then I met you. <laughs> and we just, we just like went deep. We threw the top. Like it just, it just. uh <laughs> you just opened my life up like I, I'm, I'm telling you um 
So kind of- well, I asked you that last question is what is your spiritual practice? Can you talk a little bit about it and we'll close with that? I, sure, I, I grew up Christian, um, went to Catholic schools my entire life. I, I, in college, I converted to Islam um, uh, and I've been a, a Muslim all of my adult life. And in the last few years, I have been um, studying and exploring Yoruba um, faith traditions and traditional African spirituality and trying to decolonize my spirituality um, and reclaim what was stolen. Mm -hmm. um, so it has been you know, like my own spirituality was just person, pers like just tumultuous, um, trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I thought I got something in one place, it was just like, you know, <laughs> and and then I just you know, uh, working with uh, Louisa Tish, just to shatter my my whole life and what I thought was possible and what I thought I could do. Um, and then working in this group, right, with you, Kondo, like in approaching everything from spirituality, like, um, you know, it, it really like made me go deeper and not just for performance sake. Yeah. Um, you know, so and it and it also has made me want to slow down and you know um lots of changes are happening in my life that are going to help me slow down and and go deeper and be spirit led um so but it's also full circle too yeah i told you about the prayer meeting yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it just, the prayer meeting and it and it also just validates like the not that it validates the the things that were underlying what we already had and knew and grew up with, but didn't know how to put a name to it. Yeah. You know, like people like that's just being black. I mean, like it's it is it is if you go into a black church. It's something there that goes beyond the colonization of spirit, of Christianity. Yeah. For people. Absolutely. There is. Um, it, it at a vibrational level, at um, you know, there's history in that, there is resilience in that. Yeah. You know, it's you know, it's talking to the ancestors when you don't know you're talking to the ancestors. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and the music, which you always bring. You always bring the music, David. I say. And, and the core of our, of, you know, of being human is music mm -hmm. and art. And that's what you bring always to to every, every time we gather. So anyway, I guess it's, um, time to close. I want to say thank you, David. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I just hope people walk away with understanding the spirituality of reparations and why it's so important and how it all began with, as you pointed out, you know, the denial of the spiritual essence of certain human beings. And so we got to go back that way. You got to go back in the way it came in or else it will be repeated again. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for doing this. This is super dope. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. All right, darling. All right. Much love. Much love. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.